On a ship's manifest dated May 26, 1911, is a long list of people emigrating from Greece to New York City. Among them is the Carvelis family. Christina, the mom, age 45, and her six children. Sophia, Vasiliki, Ivanthia, Spiro, Athanasios, and Anagiros. They came from Athens on the SS Themistocles and were processed through Ellis Island and then headed to Bull's Head, Staten Island to reunite with the family patriarch. As was common during the immigration boom, the husband would go to the intended destination first, find a home, get a job, and make enough money to send for the rest of the family. In this case, the patriarch was a man named Andreas Carvelis and that four-year-old Athanasios who sailed to America on the SS Themistocles with his mother would become Tom Carvel. I'm Heather Quinlan, and this is Cold Storage. My co-hosts, Paul Finnegan and I, are two Irish people. Or, I don't know, Paul. Am I considered Irish? Do you know, oh, Heather, that I was born in Arizona? Did, did I ever tell you that before? No, you did not. And okay. this, this, this changes op- everything. Yes, I've openly admitted to being born in Arizona. So we're one and one half wandering Irish people on the Peloponnese, which means we're able to get a good solid five minutes in the sun. And I'm wondering... What would make a family pull up stakes from a Mediterranean paradise and travel all the way to New York City? Part of it was the current crisis. But they left in 1911. Yeah, and this is about currents. Like water? Like there was a flood? No, currents. Sultanas. They were cast out by sultans. Jesus, this is like who's on first. Currents as in raisins. Uh, okay, I'm completely lost. Third Third base! There was a raisin crisis? In a manner of speaking. I'll say. So, Ireland wasn't the only European country to suffer through a blight in the 19th century. There was also France. Jean-Michel! Jean-Philippe! Jean-Michel Philippe, come quick! What is it, Simone? It is the wine! Look at the grapes! Sacre bleu! They have the creepy crawlies! What could have done this? I do not know! I just got this bunch of vines from... Oh, mon dieu! America! France's worst nightmare had come true. Their vineyards had been invaded by Americans. In the 1860s, French grape roots got infected with phylloxera, which had come from America. Phylloxera sounds like a disease, but even though it's Greek for dried leaves, it's really a species of aphid. Waiter, there's an aphid in my Chardonnay! So for years, Europeans had been trying to cultivate American grapevines in order to make more wine, and therefore brought over these American vines and also bought American aphids as well. This was like the black death for grapes. Like a killer mosquito, the aphids insert their proboscis into the vine, suck out the sap, then inject a venom, killing it. Northeast American grape roots were resistant to these bugs. They only ate the leaves. But European roots weren't. 
so more than 75% of French grape vineyards were devastated over a 15-year period from the 1860s to the mid-1870s. They just lost their raison d'etre. But enter Greece. By 1879, Greece was exporting enormous quantities of currants, or raisins, to France so the French could make raisin wine. That sounds... I don't know how that sounds. But I just happen to have Tom Nealon here. He's the author of Food Fights and Culture Wars and knows a thing or two about things dying on the vine. Now, Tom, I'm not feeling so great. Kind of like the French grape roots of the 1860s. And I think you might know something a little bit about that. I do. It's sort of a, I mean, for for such a widespread sort of, uh, pandemic is not very famous in history, even though we're still living with the consequences of it. But um, th- I think they often blame it on British botanists, but I have a feeling that they were just trying to build up the English wine industry. So I've run into a lot of books over the years about in the mid 19th century about them trying to do English wine. So the, the English brought over uh, vines from the American um, grape varieties, where about half the varieties in the world, I think, are, are from the Americas and the other half are European. And before that, it had, the Euro- European wine industry had been all European vines. So the English bought over these vines that were infected with this aphid. And it very quickly spread from England to France to really all over all over Europe and wiped out all of the, like 75% or something of the wine industry in Europe. So uh, not just France, but Europe. Yeah, pretty quickly spread. I mean, I think there's a couple of spots, you know, because they can't grow. Um, the, the aphids don't do very well in sandy or volcanic soil. Mm-hmm. So there are a couple of spots, I think, in Santorini in Greece and Greece and a few other places that that they that they just couldn't live. So that those vines did OK. But basically, every, really all over the world, eventually, except for like maybe Chile and parts of Australia, just went everywhere. Was their wine industry really in danger of completely disappeared. I think, it was, I think it was really on the edge of being wiped out entirely. And and they did lose a lot of grape varieties that that are extinct now that, that got wiped out. So it's the same as when we always hear stories about how like the Europeans came to the Americas. Yeah, it's, and... it's, I mean, it's, it's really just another colonialism story. Yeah, definitely. But it, it, it goes the other way. Yeah. 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 Um, so France, I imagine the French were freaking out what was the solution once they figured out the problem? So, I mean, the, the French, I think, were, were loath to pursue the solution, which was using the American vines to bring back the French wines. So they tried hybridizing with the American vines to try to make them immune, but it didn't work that great anyway. And what they eventually did was took Riverbank grapevine, which is a northeastern United States variety, and they used those roots and grafted the French vines onto those, which was pretty well-trod technology the Romans had grafted. I mean, everyone had been grafting onto, I know it seems really advanced, but it's it's actually been a, grafting grapevines has been done for thousands of years. So you take the, you, the rootstock basically, and then you graft the above ground parts onto that rootstock. So it's got the hardiness of the American roots, but it's still producing French grapes. So basically, if you're drinking French wine, it's also part American? Still got, yeah, it's got those American roots. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Victoire. With that, the wine industry was saved. 
Uh, yeah, Americans know, so would come, come in again and save France that's right, that's right. <laughs> for the first time. <laughs> well, we do owe them from the whole revolution. Thing. Uh, yes, we do. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. We, we, we most certainly do. We, we paid it forward there and then, you know, and, and we were able to uh, reap the benefits. One of the things that I am connecting this to uh, and grafting, so to speak, is how the Greeks were able to help the French at that point with by giving them currants to make uh, raisin wine. Well, I think and the the um, I think Greece was still they were like biding their time with their current wine, right? And and they sort of left left on this, and I think sort of you know charged their whole economy into creating currants, right? Um, and then when they fixed it with the, or quasi fixed the wine problem there was this collapse of the greek economy based on overproduction of currents um but i think that the 19th century there was a lot of talk early early on and about creating sugars and wines from all these different fruits and currants were definitely because they're so similar um were a big one so i did from what my my understanding is that the greeks really were almost excited by this opportunity to to sell sell currants to um to make wine out of like they'd been waiting for a couple thousand years thinking that currants current wines time would come um but it did i think turn into a big mess right but, um when they overproduced and france was like actually we're all set on the whole current thing yeah france really i think uh from what I, i've read france was like oh, thanks goodbye yeah. and uh you know take your currants thanks with for, you yeah thanks for your help so you can yeah yeah merci it like crashed their economy and I think some neighboring economies too. I mean, it was a huge, um, it's one of these, you know, like the tulip thing where, uh, where you have this one product that the entire economy was resting on and you pull it out of the way and the whole region collapsed, right? And I think I, you said I, that, that, that that's, that, that's, that's how Tom Carvel's family, right, ended up uh, well, I think it, from based on from when they left Greece, I know the economy was in terrible shape and the Greek government was telling their people, please go, go to America. It's, it's, it's nice there. You'll love it. His father was involved in uh, wine and selling wine to a lot of Greek restaurants during Prohibition. Uh, another thing I learned from researching Tom Carvel is how prohibition caused this ice cream craze? I mean, were, they, were they actually connected? Because the timing's right. They, yeah. That that ice cream got really popular, especially in you know in like regionally in Pennsylvania, especially, um, which is actually right then is when, weirdly, my great grandfather came over from Ireland and opened a dairy and an ice cream place. He came over in like 1918, 1920. Um, and and had a an ice cream thing that years and years later he sold the seal test, uh, but he was doing doing the whole um, Philadelphia ice cream, which was like its own variety of ice cream. In in like old cookbooks, you'd have like Neapolitan ice cream and Philadelphia ice cream, and those are like the two varieties of ice cream in the world. But uh, what's the what's the connection with prohibition? It was just it was like pivoting the the sugar and like you know the reward center uh and um if i can't, be drunk, I, yeah. if I can't get drunk i'll <laughs> i'll at least eat it, some what were they rocky road apparently 
started not only got that name from the ingredients but the fact that we're all on this rocky road together that oh, is that's that's a, yeah that's the story supposedly of how rocky road got its name now do you know did tom carvel or did carvel uh invent those the ice cream cake the little crummy things that go in between i think that was like a necessity being the mother of invention in the same way that he did his own commercials because he was really cheap yeah. and he didn't want to pay anyone to do it. And it ended up, you know, uh, paying dividends on top of dividends for him. Um, he, you know, he wanted to save all the, you know, cookie leftover bits. Oh, that's funny. So it was just frugality. Yeah, it was. It was frugality. And it really, it, that's the thing. The, the The crunchy stuff is what a lot of people like think about too and they, yeah, they think that's what about, made it it breaks it up and uh, the different textures and yeah that's really what made the ice cream cake yeah definitely and i mean yeah you can think about like the goofy like cookie puss face or or whatever but you know what it comes down to is it can look funny and you know whatever but if it tastes awful you're not going to have it again so if you have the right combination of like it looks goofy it's memorable but it also tastes amazing and it has these little crunchy bits <laughs> And that's all it takes, you know, and then, you know, you got yourself uh, a home run. And, you know, I mean, if you're doing crazy Eddie Tonkavell, are you going to do Action Park next? These are like uh, these seminal, seminal things from my youth. I know I should. <laughs> I I really, my parents wouldn't let me go to Action Park. Oh, really? oh, I used to, I used to, yeah, we used to get into some trouble at Action Park. I know the best I could do was great adventure and, and nothing. I was never electrocuted or nearly drowned there. So like, what's the point? Um, oh, one last thing, uh, my Columbo thing. You, you've you written a book on, on the history of food, correct? Yeah, I, I did. Yeah, Food Fights and Culture Wars. Have you come across um, anything, why there are so many Greek restaurants? Or but I mean, like I grew up with like every diner that you go to. Is, was Greek and had, you know, this endless menu. It's three o'clock in the morning. We're in Yonkers, you know, and look at all your choices. Isn't that good? Which enough? is where Tom Carvel lived. <laughs> is that, was it Yonkers? Yeah. 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 That's where he got his start. That's where Carvel and that's where he had his headquarters. Oh, that's funny. I, I grew up in Westchester and they have everything on Central Avenue and Yonkers. So I spent a lot of time in Yonkers. Central Avenue uh, is where he would drive his ice cream truck up and down Central Avenue. He tells a lot of different stories about how he got his start doing soft serve, um, one of which being he got a flat while he was selling ice cream uh, in front of a pottery store. And a guy named, of all things, Pop Quinlan came out to help him, which uh, I I uh, am dubious about. But uh, and also the story changes a lot. But um, sometimes Pop Quinlan is there. Sometimes he isn't. But he did end up taking over that pottery store and turning it into the first Carvel shop. Oh, um, yeah, I found doing research all these years that almost every like origin story about food is completely made up. They're almost all they're like a little too convenient, a little you know. Right, right. I thought yeah. you were going to say that he broke down and like the ice cream melted a little bit. But, and then well, that is that is what happened. Oh, that would happen. People came yes. out and were like, "Oh, this half melted ice cream is amazing." Exactly. Uh, it was a very hot day, Memorial yeah. Day weekend, and I think it was 1934. 
and he broke down and then Pop Quinlan or someone or no one, I don't know who, uh, came out and said, you know, you can plug your truck into my outlet and so you can keep the refrigeration going. But in the meantime, the ice cream had melted. And apparently, because it was Memorial Day weekend, there were so many people driving by who just were on like Central Avenue. They weren't even like at a beach or something, which is where he had intended to go. But they saw an ice cream truck and were like, hey, I bet he has ice cream. And then, you know, amazingly, they all like were like, we love this melted ice cream. And he like sold out that day and sold all his ice cream. And that's when he realized that there was this need for soft serve ice cream. And that's the origin story. You know, even the even the ice cream cone has a silly story. You, you probably heard it right at the no, I haven't. The, the World's Fair in Chicago in whatever the year that was, eighteen ninety five. They they ran out of like cups at the ice cream stand, and they happened to be right next to a guy selling waffles. And they're like, "What if we rolled up this waffle and <laughs> filled, filled it?" And that's the origin of that they tell of the ice cream cone. But it's definitely not right. I mean. Uh, Nothing that ever actually happens like that. Nothing is that easy. But that's, 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 I mean, I think that's still the official story. There's something about food that makes people tell these ridiculous stories and they just stick. And people are like, oh, that makes sense. Like, no, it doesn't. It doesn't make any sense. How could that have happened? All right. Well, thank you again. That was Tom Nealon. His book is Food Fights and Culture Wars. You can also visit him at his store, Pozzo Books in Boston, or check him out on highlowbrow.com. So, by the 1880s, with help from the U.S., French vineyards were restored. This was great for France, not so much for Greece, which had double the number of their raisin vineyards. France thanked Greece for keeping them afloat by stopping raisin imports altogether. (coughs) This meant a spectacular growth in Greek raisin production was followed by an equally spectacular fall, an economic disaster known as the current crisis. This then led to a huge drop in the price of raisins, and loans to raisin growers couldn't be repaid. So by 1908, the Greek government was telling their own people to get out. They couldn't afford them. That 10 minutes in Greece was fun while it lasted. I got a nice base color, which means I'm in tremendous pain. But, you know, it's good to be back in the Big Apple. On second thought, Let's take a quick trip to Florida. It's 1906, and legend has it, Andreas Carvelis is in Tarpon Springs, Florida, near St. Petersburg. This would be a more seamless move from Greece. Well, supposedly it was just Tom Carvel's dad, Andreas, because, according to Carvel, this was Andreas' first stop in America. This story was so out there, even by Carvel standards, I had to believe it. And while I can't find any evidence that Andreas was a sponge diver, there was, and is, a huge sponge diving industry in Tarpon Springs, where guys go down in those deep-sea diving helmets and come back with loofahs. And per capita, Tarpon Springs has the highest percentage of Greek Americans in any U.S. city. But if Tarpon Springs is where Andreas was, he opted not to stay there, because soon after his family arrived in the U.S., they settled in Stratford, Connecticut, near Bridgeport which also has a large Greek community. And I also just happen to have my friend Liz Pristoris right here to talk about the Greek immigrant experience. Liz is the owner of the Parkway Restaurant in Diker Heights, Brooklyn. Try their cheeseburgers. They are out of this world. Liz, can you tell us why there are so many Greek restaurants in particular? 
Um, usually Greeks would start with the restaurant business, you know, manual work, washing dishes, and this is how everyone started. And then the ones that want to get ahead, save their money, have some sense, they move on, start their own businesses, you know, and uh, that's what I think in, for most immigrants, you know, start off in these kind of jobs and then they move ahead and make it big in this country. So, and in terms of the restaurant business now, uh, tell me like a little bit about your business and how uh, you came about to owning a restaurant. My, uh, in the mid seventies, my, my in-laws along with my husband found this location and they started it up. It was a little luncheonette at the time. They renovated and made it into a restaurant. It was no longer a luncheonette. It was a restaurant sit down with booths and uh, the like diner looking, but a restaurant because it wasn't by itself detached on the highway. It was a restaurant attached on both sides on 13th Avenue. So we call it a restaurant, but everyone calls it the diner, you know, whatever they like to call whatever they like. But that's how ours started. And since 1985, when we re redid it until this day, it's still going. Do you know why, for instance, the Greek community, the Irish do pubs, why uh, restaurants? Is it that, you know, in your case, it was your in-laws, but, you know, there is a thing about there's a, a, always a Greek diner or a Greek restaurant. Yeah. Yeah. It would be the washing of the dishes, you know, it, the one guy started it. Once the one guy did it, then another two guys came and two guys made it four. And then it becomes like that, like. Chinese people with the laundries. One guy did it and then they all followed after. You know, when we first came, so we started in the kitchen and, you know, in the back washing dishes because that didn't require any language, knowledge of any uh, English. So you just go in the back, start at the bottom, wash the dishes. And like I said, you know, you work hard enough and you can move ahead, go on and buy your own business. The restaurants mainly though, diners. You know, it has to be a Greek diner. It has to be an Irish pub. That's just the way it is. We can't get away from it no matter what we do. And if you know another language and you speak another language fluently, like I speak Greek, don't look at me like I'm some kind of foreigner Like and tell me, go back to where you came from. I've been in this country 60 years. I'm sorry, Heather, I'm going off. But these are the things I noticed. You know, people, because you know another language, like you just came off the boat and they look at you weirdly. We're here 60 years <laughs> off the boat. Actually, off the boat. That's right. It's 1964. <laughs> Greeks obviously have this impediment, if you want to call it that, in America, in that their language is, uh, is you know, there's a yeah. language barrier. Um, yeah. But is there or was there at the time a feeling of like, we're going to stick together or we're going to, you know, be a part of the American dream or maybe a little bit of both. We wanted to mix in with the Americans. We did. My grandmother, when I was eight or nine, we would be in the supermarket and she would speak to me in Greek and I would be so embarrassed because people would look at us like, oh my God, they're speaking another language. This is in the sixties now, right? I didn't want others to hear us speaking Greek. And I would tell my grandmother, yeah, yeah, lower your voice, talk lower, talk lower. You know, I would go closer to her so she wouldn't speak loud. So yeah, at the time I didn't want to anyone else to hear us. But over the years I've changed, you know, the pride came 
You can be both Greek and American. You could be both Irish and American. My mother used to go to classes when she was in the 60s to learn some English. So she would not be like a fool and drag me everywhere to the unemployment office to translate for her. <laughs> and uh, not that I knew anything about unemployment at age eight, but I would have to explain, explain. She would tell me, explain. What is she saying? What is she saying? How do you say that in Greek? And what, explain? Like she would say, like, tell me, tell me what she's saying. Tell me what she's saying, you know? And I would try to understand what the lady was saying at the unemployment office because I didn't know the terms. I didn't know the words, you know? It was hard for me to understand what was going on, but I tried my best. Well, I think most grown-ups don't understand it either at the time. Yeah, yeah it's not easy. And I, uh, I sympathize with these young kids being dragged around by their mothers <laughs> having to explain, you know? And I, I try to be nice to them because I remember me and my mother, you know, how it was. It was hard. It was hard. Carvel uh, actually moved to Bridgeport. And I had not known that there was a Greek community in Bridgeport, but um, do you know anything about the Greek community in Bridgeport? Bridgeport, Connecticut, Stamford, Bridgeport. Yeah, Connecticut has a lot of Greeks. Yeah, like I said, one goes there, then they'll all go there. Make jobs for others. They'll open stores. This is how it starts. And then one goes, and then the other goes. Along the um, east and west coast, there's a lot, you know, of Greeks and other cultures, because that's when we first came, that's where we stayed. Most of us stayed. Uh, not many moved into Kansas or the middle of America. Most of us stayed where we came. We stayed put. Do you remember uh, the Tom Carvel ads? Yeah. Fudgy the whale. Fudgy the whale. And his voice, even in his older age, you know, how his voice was. And God bless him. You know, he. it's not easy to keep something so many years to be consistently good. I see it now from us, you know, and one thing that helps us is the customers themselves. Like they keep it, they keep us going. I ask them, what's this? Do you like this? Tell me if you don't like this. Tell me, like even the, the vinegar, my husband goes nuts over the vinegar. It has to be progresso. Even though it's more expensive than regular red vinegar, he wants Progresso. And at one time during COVID, they stopped making it. And he freaked. Where, where, where can we go to get Progresso vinegar? Because that in the Greek salad makes the salad taste better. You know? Little things like that. You know? And quality things. Um, but that's what keeps it. And I would ask the customers and they would tell me. And I would tell my husband, this is what we should do. You know? Use this pita bread. This one's better. This one toasts better. This one, you know. Little things like that, you ne you'd never expect it, but the little things make a big deal sometimes. So Mr. Carvel, I'm sure, uh, knew this and he at, because he kept at it all these years, and it's still going after his death. I don't know who's in charge, who's, who's running it now, but it's still good. It's still good, right? Yeah, and he had a thing where he, uh, you know, he was very uh, exacting about using Carvel um approved uh ingredients uh right. and interestingly i just discovered for a long time he refused to have whipped cream on his ice cream because he felt like it took away from the taste of the ice cream and the ice cream was so good you that, see yeah. yeah yeah you don't need the you don't need the whipped cream who needs more sugar you have enough there and it's good 
<laughs> so awesome. The soft vanilla with the hot fudge is my favorite. My favorite. Coney Island Avenue, there's one there. The lady is about, I don't know, 80 years old. She, with her crooked fingers, she's still, I go to her. I, I, I ask her to serve me, you know. She's, it just looks like she's been there so long, you know. Avenue Y and Coney Island Avenue. I, my dentist is right there on Avenue Z. So I go there, get a cleaning, and then I go get the, the junior, the little cup, the kitty cup, soft vanilla. I, I just want to ask you one other question about, um, you know, running a business and keeping a business afloat and, you know, rolling with the punches, things like COVID or the, the economy or, you know, the price of food these days. Um, yeah. And he was able to stay in business for so long. What do you think are um, kind of the biggest challenges in running, a, especially a food business? The best thing would be the communication between or among anyone, you know, who's a partner in this business. And if it's family, it's even better because it's good for the family. But you have to have good communication. And then when you have others coming into the family, and new ideas coming in and new thoughts. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not. But if you have a good basis, a good basis, you stick with it. Don't go too far away from it. Stay with it, change it a little bit, not too much, and try to communicate. Communicate is the, the biggest thing, I think. Even for the littlest things. Like I chat with my sons, I have them both on one chat and whatever little thing, like if somebody's hours were changed for an, one hour, it would make a difference because that worker is not coming for that hour. And I want both of them to know that that worker is not going to be there an hour. So make sure somebody's there to cover his time, you know. So that's the main thing. I think communication is the best thing. Well, yeah. Thank you so much, Liz. Thank you too, Heather. You brought me back some years, you know. That was Liz Pristoris, fellow Met fan, and don't forget, Parkway Restaurant, Diker Heights, Brooklyn. Now, if there's one guess I can be sure about Tom Carvel that's on the money, it's that he adored and respected his father, and it's from him that Tom learned all about the chemistry of syrups and confections, the sweet science. Three, two, one. He'd studied wines in Greece, in Italy, and France, I really owe him for being in the ice cream business because he knew all about sugars. I got my knowledge of sugars and fruits and toppings from my father. Was that Don Carleone? No, just my uncle. The Carvelises didn't know it at the time, but about 10 years after they arrived here, Prohibition started, which, as we mentioned, stoked the fires of America's passion for ice cream. Password? Muggsy sent me? <laughs> no dice. Bugsy sent me. Ah, beat it, bozo. Fine, I'm gonna get some rum raisin. Even though Hollywood made it seem that way, not everyone from 1920 to 1933 hung out at speakeasies and ran molasses with Hyman Roth. And not all breweries went out of business either. Coors made pottery, Pabst Blue Ribbon made cheese, and Yingling and Anheuser-Busch made ice cream to keep their businesses, mm, afloat? Ice cream had already been popular and now bars were being converted into soda shops. Young men were pitching woo over strawberry phosphates and between 1916 and 1925, ice cream consumption in the United States increased by 55%. 
Walter C. Hughes, Secretary of the National Confectioners Association, an organization which still exists, it's at candyusa.com, wrote that ice cream makers were making a lot of money because people had more disposable income to spend on comfort food. By 1922, there were over 100,000 soda fountains in the United States, earning about $1 billion. This is $1922 billion. And the annual supply of ice cream for New Yorkers alone was 300 million gallons. And Tom Carvel stood on the shoulders of ice cream giants like the Parker Brothers. Not to be confused with the guys who made board games, these guys invented the drumstick. Then there was Harry Burt's Good Humor Bar, which led to the trucks with the screaming kids that we still see today. And the person at Dixie Cup who came up with the idea of selling the Dixie ice cream cups. By the end of Prohibition in 1933, the demand for ice cream decreased, though ice cream itself was now firmly entrenched in our way of life. Just in time for Tom Carvel to be riding his truck through Hartsdale, New York. So, Paul, what's up next on Cold Storage? Next on Cold Storage, we'll get to all the things we said we'd get to at the end of Episode 1. Plus, how World War II launched Tom Carvel's ice cream career, which we'll start to see quickly became not so sweet. We'd like to thank our guests Tom Nealon and Liz Prestoris, and this week's performers, Russ Hodge, Anna McGovern, Eric Munn, Michelle Munn, and E.J. Williams as the Scary Bouncer. So until then, I'm Paul Finnegan. And I'm Heather Quinlan. And this was Cold Storage. <laughs>